This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's set the Business Week agenda now. A lot on it. Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's in New Jersey, as is Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor, author of The Chart and Stock of the Day. Gina, I want to start with you because it's a pretty gloomy Uh, picture across all the major indices. What are you seeing as you and your team really break it down? What's the big driver here? Yeah, I think it's tough to articulate one driver or another. The S&P 500 opened this week, testing key levels. We saw the index crash through its 50-day moving average as of Friday. So we knew we were in for some continuation of the corrective process. Uh, When we woke up this morning, irrespective of some of the news, in particular the news on the financial sector and maybe some dubious, nefarious behavior among participants being potentially pretty dangerous for that space has been the big news of today. And that may have contributed to a broader a broader sell-off than would have been likely otherwise. But I'd say the technicals were set up for a rough day to continue today. Now we may be looking at finally a capitulation point, which you know, for the first time since the end of August, we can say the index is nearing oversold levels. Um, So we want to watch through the close to see how broad the correction is if we get to a 14-day moving average uh, or a 14-day RSI back near uh, oversold levels that could represent a buying point for capital that's been looking to get into this market but waiting for uh, an appropriate time to do so. Dave Wilson, come on in on what you're seeing in the trade today. You know, there are a couple of things that jump out besides what's going on with the banks, you know, after this uh, report from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists talking about, you know, how they may be handling or not handling uh, suspicious transactions properly. So uh, that that's a piece of it. Beyond that, I mean, you look at what's going on with hospitals and with health insurers. All this sort of tied up with what happens to the Affordable Care Act uh, now that the the Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed and, you know, we may get a successor before Election Day, which would mean we'd have a successor when a week after Election Day, the high court hears arguments by the states trying to get rid of Obamacare. So, you know, those stocks are especially weak in today's trading. And then there's the saga of Nikola, the uh, electric truck Jeez. developer. And yeah, the, the Do you wonder founder- if they're sitting at General Motors saying, oh, whose uh, idea was this? <laughs> They I mean, they're still, well they're still more to know, and I don't want to, you know, kind and of count them out. And if they aren't doing it at GM, I can assure you GM shareholders, at least some of them, are asking that question. Because while nickel is down 19%, GM's off more than 5.5%. And there's another company that's already working with nickel, CNH Industrial. Now, they're big into tractors and, you know, other types of sort of industrial machines. CNH is down almost 8%. So there's definitely a toll being taken that goes beyond, you know, this development stage company. And and so that's another one that jumps out, especially because nickel is the product of, you know, a deal with one of these special purpose acquisition companies, SPACs, blank check companies, call them what you will. Heard it's a real them. black eye. Uh, absolutely. We've been talking about those a ton. Uh, Gina Martin-Adams, before we let you go, 
the election, politics, is that starting to weigh on this market in a more meaningful way? Yeah, well, politics, I think. Dave already highlighted the the Ginsburg um, passing and what that may mean for the Supreme Court and the ACA um, sort of battle uh, upcoming. So there certainly is a portion of politics. I would also say, though, the election is absolutely getting priced into VIX futures. I mean, we've seen over the last month VIX futures for November getting even more expensive than October, which says to me the market is trying to price for a very uncertain or highly volatile election season lasting right through the end of November, which would be very unusual. So I do think it's part of this, uh, but obviously there are a lot of moving parts, and it all started with the deflation of a mini tech bubble, which is now extending into other issues. Right. All Mm. right. Well, good, good context as always. Thank you so much. Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence along with Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor for Bloomberg, both joining us from New Jersey. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. One of the best stories and one of the best reporters, candidly, I just love talking to him, love reading his stuff. Jeff Green, Managing Diversity Reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from Michigan to talk about a story. It's in the upcoming edition of the magazine. It's about Southern Bank Corp, its CEO named Darren Williams. He joins me as well as Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. So Joel, part of the equality issue, I believe, and this is a really, really important piece of the puzzle when it comes to undoing a lot of the systemic racism, candidly, going after the wealth gap and the lending gap to a a large extent. That's right. And so Darren Williams, um, one of finance's only black CEOs, and he's uh, a CEO of of Southern Bank Corp, which uh, Jeff is going to tell us about more in a second. What I found so interesting about this was it's like there's this void um, in the country, uh, in the South in particular, where there are thousands of unbanked people. And that has obviously limited their ability to not only get capital, but also you know move up in society. And that's a, a problem that um, uh, Darren has sort of recognized and that uh, Southern Bank Corp has moved to solve. Um, and Jeff, how, talk to us about how he's going about addressing this problem. Yeah, well, it's, it's really interesting that, you know, it, it, the und and underbanked are about a quarter of the population, and they're predominantly, they tend to skew heavily black um, and people of color in general, but mostly black. Um, and it's the kind of thing that's somewhat hidden. And it's it, a little bit intractable, intractable because these are people that banks really can't lend money to. And thus, they end up going to payday lenders, which makes them even um, higher credit risk because they have, they have so much debt. So what Darren and Southern were, were trying to do even before the pandemic was to figure out a way to sort of bridge this, to bring these people into the banking system, help them to trust the banks, give them some sense that, the, that what they're doing with the payday lenders, they're never going to gain sort of the wealth that you get. You, you can't get a house. You can't get a mortgage until you kind of straighten that stuff out. So, like, that's his big goal is to put more people in a position to be able to have a bank account, gain credit, and ultimately have a mortgage and have something where, where wealth is accrued. And it was interesting because we started doing this a year ago prior to the pandemic, and, and the, the big frustrating thing for him was it, it was sort of in the background. It was like you knew this was a problem. You knew it was sucking the life out of people, but you, it was really hard for people to sort of understand just how momentous it was. You know, right. and then the, the pandemic hits. 
and you know front and center are people dying at three times the rate in black communities and and it's like you start to say wow this is not just esoteric philosophical discussion this is life and death and the death is really stunning to a lot of, a lot of americans well and jeff i think then on top of that in the aftermath of the killing of george floyd and and this reckoning this long overdue reckoning around all of those issues that you described around the wealth gap that's been brought to the fore by the likes of John Rogers over at Ariel and others. And I do wonder, you know, how Darren Williams sees this and sort of to your point, like this has been hiding in plain sight for a long time. He's happy for the attention, but what do we do about it? What does he say we should be doing? What is he doing to sort of help the cause? Well, the, the the solution that both you know he sees because he is his bank is is called the Consumer Development Financial Institution, which is sort of a specially chartered bank that is designed to try and bring money and and you know loans and financial wherewithal to the poorest people in the country. Um, it was something actually created by President Clinton in '94, and the and Southern was the model for it. Hillary Clinton was on the first version of Southern's board when it was formed, you know, more than a quarter century ago. So it's like a long standing. This is not a new struggle. But his idea is to use the CDFIs more effectively. In fact, Bank of America and Goldman Sachs were on a call with him and President Trump, basically saying we need to do this, we need to do more of this, and it led to a big infusion of money to the CDFIs. And that is sort of the question is, will this continue? I mean, it was in a crisis moment. The Paycheck Protection Plan was not getting to the people it needed to because the big banks didn't have the infrastructure. Meanwhile, here's Darren Williams working on the weekend with his staff, getting, you know, wrote 50 checks when other people hadn't even got an application yet. So that's sort of his hope is that now people know the CDFIs are there. The big banks have kind of thrown some money their way. Netflix is involved. Google's involved. Will you know, get this to continue so that the focus stays on the CDFIs. More money is available so that they can do more loans. I mean, that's the only way it works is they need basically below market rate money that they can then lend out to keep this moving. So, Jeff, there, there's um, a thousand of these CDFIs um, out there that are in a position to help. Um, and it's all been modeled on on, on basically Williams and sort of uh, in the model that they've adapted. I'm also curious what other ideas he has for how we could be helping um, vulnerable Americans right now. Well, I mean, one of the key things is credit education. They were doing this. I mean, I went with them to a class in this little town site in, uh, you know, just off a cotton field, just, you know, middle of nowhere, but, you know, 20 people there learning about credit and how it works and how interest accrues and debt and all those sorts of things, basically just right at the grassroots level, trying to teach people, um, you know, how to get their finances in order. And then at the end of that, they would give them this 9% loan, which, you know, keep in mind, a payday loan is around 400%, you know, if you don't pay it off right away. So this 9% loan at the time um, that they would keep, they would pay half of it, or half of it would be available for them to pay bills, and half of it would be held in sort of like a certificate of deposit. And that was like one of the tools. I mean, there's lots of things that he's basically saying you need to just do the block and tackling um in the communities to keep this going. And a lot of the big banks have pulled out. And he's like, great, you don't want to deal with it. Give me more money so that I can deal with it, so I can get the money to the people that need it. I can focus on the hardest-hit communities um, with more effectiveness. Right, right. Well, and it's interesting, and I highly recommend people read this story because there's an aspect of this, and you alluded to this, Jeff, around the payday lenders that's a really important piece to understand the the delta 
in the interest rates there is massive and game-changing uh, in a lot of ways. It's a terrific piece of reporting, as always, from Jeff Green, Managing Diversity Reporter for Bloomberg. He joined me on the phone from Michigan. Check out that story in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week. You can read it now on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. My thanks as well to Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joined from Massachusetts. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, kicking off the 3 p.m. Wall Street time hour. Let's do a little Business Week economics if we can. Andy Brown is with us, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy, joining us on the phone from New Hampshire, picking up where Doug Krisner just left off when it comes to TikTok. Man, this deal, and we've talked about it before, Andy, is just head spinning, head scratching, however you want to put it. It's nothing like we've ever seen before. And it ain't over when it comes to getting done. What's the most important thing we need to understand about this? Because as I look at it, at least, and I think you may agree, it's kind of a mess. It is a complete debacle and has been really right from the very beginning. And stuck in the middle of this U.S.-China geopolitical tug of war is a company and investors that are desperately trying to figure a way out. On the one hand, this is TikTok and its parent, ByteDance. On the one hand, they've got the Chinese government, which essentially looks at what's happening as a politically inspired smash and grab raid by the Trump administration. And on the other hand, by the Trump administration, um, which is using the TikTok issue and WeChat as a chip or as a bargaining chip in, uh, in, in, in domestic politics, essentially beating up on China uh, as a vote-getting, uh, a vote-getting ploy. And so they've been twisting this way and that way, and it now looks like this deal that they stitched together which, by the way, gets Trump almost nothing of what he wanted in the first place out of it. Um, And even that deal now looks shaky. It's not at all sure that the Chinese side are going to sign off on it or whether Trump himself uh, is satisfied with it. And so knowing the intricacies of the governments and that nexus between the national governments and the national champions, as it were, both of which I think you can argue uh, you have on, on either side here, what went wrong? Was this just sort of too hard, too fast? Or was everybody not on board to begin with? Like, what do you make of it, again, especially knowing some of the nuances of how each side interacts with the other? Well, it's just the the whole deal is is unprecedented. Um, We've never had a company caught up in this way before with kind of um, M&A being dictated literally out of the the Oval Office. Um, So it's, it's, incredibly it's incredibly difficult there are so many constituencies that need to be satisfied um and in the end it looks like nobody is going to i mean so so trump came into this he said look i've got three things number one this uh, tiktok has got to be owned by a u.s company 
Number two, we have to make the data secure um, uh, so that it doesn't fall into the hands of the Chinese Communist Party and they have all this personal data on on, on the U.S. population. And three, we want to have a big chunk of change. They're going to make a a big payment to the U.S. Treasury. Well, actually, even under this new deal, 80% of the company after the IPO, if it IPOs, is still going to be owned by by ByteDance. Um, the algorithms um, are, are going to be open to inspection by Oracle, the trusted technology partner, but it won't, they won't, in that sense, sort of belong to any U.S. entity. ByteDance has them. And as for this $5 billion payment that Trump talks about, um, you know, it turns out that this is kind of tax that they were going to be paying anyway to the U.S. government, and there's some sort of vague, nebulous promise that they'll come up with uh, a, a kind of a, some kind of patriotic education program, right. whatever that may mean for for U.S. kids. Um, so, so he's got he's got actually very little of what he pushed for. So, if if your concern was national security, this deal doesn't really do it for you. And so as you widen the aperture a little bit and think about this from the context of ongoing tensions, ongoing negotiations around trade and the broader relationship when the US, with, between the U.S. and China, what does this tell you? You know, if you're a Chinese company and you're thinking about making an investment in the U.S., um, you're thinking strategically indeed about your global position, or if you're an American company now and you're thinking about you know, the China market and how you should be positioned there, this should really worry you because, mm. because it, it has been so unpredictable. I mean, we're in, we're in uncharted territory. Um, uh, there, are no, the, 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 there are no real rules, at least under the old system, the CFIUS system, this sort of you know, the screening process. Um, it was somewhat predictable. You knew what you were getting into. A lot of deals didn't get done because companies thought to themselves, well, it's not going to get through the U.S. screening committee, so we won't bother. This one just came right out of left field and surprised, surprised everybody. And so on the other side, if you're a U.S. tech company, what do you think about this? Well, so, and actually it's not just tech. Right now there's... there's uh, there's a lot right. of, of talk about an entities list. So the Chinese could actually come up with a list of companies that could be subject to retribution, not necessarily uh, U.S. companies. So uh, that could include tech companies, but banks, um, trading companies. Um, you know, China hasn't retaliated so far because it, it really needs foreign investment. It needs foreign technology. Um, but, uh, but, you know, pushed, pushed far enough, they actually could start to take action against U.S. companies, international companies in China. Wow. All right. Andy Brown, thank you so much. Andy Brown, of course, is the editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. He has been breaking down this deal, trying to make sense of it alongside the rest of us. I have to say, uh, this is something we've watched incredibly closely. We've had a global team working on it from all angles, corporate deal-making, political, international. It has touched all boxes and continues to evolve and change. And this week seems like it will be a big week when it comes to that deal happening or not happening. And obviously, a lot of it just comes down to the President of the United States and what he decides to do when it comes to TikTok. Uh, Our thanks to Andy Brown. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Happy to welcome to this program, Pete Stavros. He's co-head of America's for Private Equity for KKR. 
heard of it. It's one of the best known private equity firms, and it's a firm that has been talking a lot over the past years about its various stakeholders, and that includes employees at a time when we're more and more concerned about all of the constituencies involved in a company. Pete, you've got some news today to share with us about what you're doing with some of your portfolio companies. First, welcome. Tell us what's going on at Ingersoll Rand. Thanks for having me, uh, Jason. So today we celebrated a $150 million equity award to non-members of management. So these are mostly hourly employees who work in our factories and our distribution centers and earn an hourly, hourly wage. This is on top of a $100 million grant we did at our IPO in 2017, which because the stock has performed so well is now worth about $170, $180 million. So you, you add both those up, it's more than $300 million of equity in the hands of hourly workers. And so very meaningful uh, financially. And, you know, we've got lots of kind of personal stories we've right. been able to, to hear firsthand in terms of what it's meant for them. And then just as importantly, in terms of outcomes for companies and for our investors, you know, we see higher employee engagement, better returns, better results, and, and better outcomes for our investors. Well, and let's talk about the personal side of this. And I'm going to start with you because part of the genesis of this, I think, is your own history and sort of growing up and understanding the industrial landscape, not just as now an investor, but as a kid from, from your dad. Yeah, that's right. My, my dad was a construction worker. He operated a road grader for his whole career in Chicago, earned an hourly wage. And, you know, I just saw firsthand the lack of incentive alignment. And if you think about it, if you're an hourly employee, really all you care about are getting more hours. So that can be at the expense of efficiency. I mean, if you're too efficient, you may work fewer hours and earn less money. And there was just constant conflict around hours. And my dad always dreamt about you know shared ownership or profit sharing at, at his um, construction company with his union and it you know you know unfortunately never happened but that certainly really stuck with me and then as a graduate student you know years later this is now still 20 years ago but uh, as an as a young adult in, in graduate school you get a lot of flexibility to study what interests you and I had an opportunity to study broad-based ownership for my second year in business school and that was a hot topic in the 1970s around ESOPs had really kind of cooled and I was interested to learn why it interest dissipated. Could it still be relevant today? Could it be relevant to private equity? And then when I joined KKR back in 05 and and was fortunate enough to step into a leadership position running industrials, that was when I was able to kind of first put these ideas into action. And it's fascinating, too, because this and I'm just going to say it out loud, this cuts against candidly, the, the public profile of private equity uh, in many ways that tends to enrich a few and, and not think about the rest in, in many ways. So I do wonder what the conversations are like as you engage companies around this. Are they looking at you like, mm, I don't know about this? Yeah, we do encounter some some skepticism, you know, maybe even some cynicism. Some of our companies, we are buying from other private equity firms. And so we do get a little bit of, hey, I've been around the block. I've seen this before, you know, and I just don't believe that we're going to share an ownership and you're going to do all these things you're telling us around investing in the facilities and investing in employees. So there is some, uh, you, you've got some wood to chop at the outset. We overcome it by bringing in CEOs from companies that have run businesses for us before and telling them that this is this is real. 
Uh, we really mean it. We also do a lot to make that ownership feel real. So we print physical stock certificates often. We will open up Fidelity accounts for people, even though the, the stock of their company might be private and not publicly traded. You know, we, we do as our valuations internally change for that company, we flow it through Fidelity and then they see value being created in their portfolio. So, uh, but, but I have to say, even public companies, Ingersoll Rand, the predecessor company, Gardner Denver, when we took it, it was a public company in 2013, 6,000 employees, 86 people had ownership, which is very typical. One to 2% of a company typically takes up all the ownership. And so, you know, even in public companies, we do come up, up against the skepticism you're talking about. And so talk about other elements of this, because obviously the financial element is super important. But one of the things that we're increasingly talking about, we talked about it earlier on uh, today, and it's part of the Business Week issue this week is not just about shared ownership, but basically sort of a holistic view of someone's finances and creating wealth. And and I believe you've done some work with Operation Hope. John Bryant Hope, John Hope Bryant, excuse me, has been a guest on this program. Uh, tell me a little bit more about what you're doing there. You're right. It does have to be broader than just ownership, because if it's just ownership and you just hand out the ownership and that's the end of the conversation, that's just compensation. And if what you're after is a better employee experience, more engaged employees, and better ultimate performance in the company, you, you've got to be broader than that. So even as it relates to ownership, you know, the CEOs who do this well, and our CEO of Ingersoll Rand is exceptionally good at this, uh, Vicente Reynal, you've got to treat people like owners. So you've got to share the business plan, share the vision, where are we headed? How are we going to get there? How are, is everyone going to participate in the upside, you know, assuming we achieve our plans? But then beyond ownership, we do things around investing in the workforce, um, improving the work environment, which starts with the basics like employee safety, but also we've extended to, you know, we brought in healthier food options to our manufacturing plants. Uh, right now we're building an onsite medical clinic at one of our facilities because the employees have complained about having to drive so far for, you know, basic um, medical care. You mentioned John Bryant, we work closely with Operation Hope to do first personal financial training. I mean, if you're gonna give out ownership, and have people really have a shot at wealth creation, they are gonna to have to understand what, you know, get some basic training on, on what to do with it. Um, and that ranges from debt repayment to understanding the earned income tax credit to, you know, how to invest money, you know, once they have some wealth. So um, the last part, by the way, is, is our companies also, I think, do a nice job of engaging with the community. Right. And, and this is all about building pride in the organization, showing employees, hey, this is about more than just making money. And so we've, we've struck a, a number of really exciting partnerships with nonprofits as well. So Pete, I would be journalistically negligent if I didn't ask you about the broader private equity world. You guys at KKR have been exceedingly busy. I think it's fair to say putting a lot of money to work, doing a lot of deals during a time when the world is, to say the least, topsy-turvy. What are you seeing out there now six months into a work from home environment where the economy remains a little bit uncertain, the stock market remains pretty resilient today, notwithstanding. What are you seeing out there? Yeah, we we, uh, we have remained active both on the investment side and on the distribution side, returning capital to our investors. And we're proud of having been able to accomplish both during this, this COVID period of time. In terms of what we're seeing right now, you know, in the economy itself, it, it's as you would expect, there are some things doing well, 
Um, some aspects of retail are actually surprisingly doing quite well. Uh, anything around housing, if you look at the exodus from urban areas to suburban areas, low interest rates, strong housing prices, anything touching that, building products, et cetera, doing really well. Anything around travel, leisure, aerospace, people making manuf manufacturing aerospace components, obviously a much tougher uh, environment. In terms of what we're looking for, we're looking for either secular trends and themes we really believe in, health and wellness, e-commerce, et cetera, or areas that are really in the crosshairs of COVID that if you've got a 10-year horizon, you, you know, you're going to, there's a lot of growth from here. Might not recover all the way back, but there's a lot of growth from here. So things like, you know, we invested in U.S. foods, great business that serves uh, restaurants as a distributor. That's something that with the fullness of time is going to come back. And so as you look at the end of this year and into 21, what's the biggest challenge for you as an investor? The biggest challenge I would say is just the lack of visibility. Yeah. I mean, everything is changing so quickly and there's so much going on between, you know, you've got a potential uh, spike in COVID coming, you know, this fall, you've got the election, you've got trade uh, issues with China. I mean, there's just a little bit, it's coming at you so fast, it can be hard to separate the, the signal from the noise. I would say that's the biggest issue an investor's got is the amount coming at you is a little bit, you know, unprecedented. And more to come on this program where equity continues to go uh, in deeper into the organizations you own? Definitely. This is uh, something we are continuing to expand, experiment with, try and constantly improve. You know, we, we understand that this is not a perfect fit for every sector. You know, if you take retail as an example, average employee turnover is 100% a year. If you right. walk in and start talking about a five-year business plan, that's not going to be effective. So, so we, yes, it's this is here to stay for us. We are going to be expanding it and continuing to experiment with it. But again, we're you know we we understand that it's not going to be right for every situation. All right, Pete Stavros, really good to catch up with you, co-head of America's Private Equity for KKR, a novel solution to spreading the compensation and the ownership throughout the economy. My thanks to him. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. With us is Dave Donabedian. He is Chief Investment Officer of CIBC Private Wealth Management. Roughly $74 billion in assets under management on the phone from Baltimore. Hey, Dave, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. How do you explain the selling today? How do you see it? Well, I'll tell you, it, it brings back uh, bad memories from the COVID bear market of, of February and March, not just because the market's down, but um, you know, we've got about maybe 10% of the stocks in the S&P 500 are up, and it's the old stay-at-home stocks. It's e-commerce, it's comfort foods, at-home entertainment, video gaming, even testing labs. That's about all that's up. And if you look at what's get, kind of getting crushed today, it's airlines, casinos, cruise lines. It's uh, uh, again, rings very familiar to the, the dark days of, uh, of February and March. And, and so in, in some of that, obviously, emanates from the, 
concerns coming out of Europe about a resurgence of, of COVID-19 and the notion right. that maybe again, uh, what hits there first will, will, will come here next. Right. A reminder, we're not out of the woods yet. But having said that, we are off our lows of the session. Are investors still out there thinking, okay, when there's a pullback, it's an opportunity for me to get in? I do, I do think that. There, mm-hmm. there is definitely a significant, uh, you know, buy-the-dip constituency out there, and the support behind that is liquidity, 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 right? There's the usual wall of worry uh, in the market, what, you know, what to worry about like COVID and the economy and, and, and so on. Um, but the onslaught of liquidity provided by the Federal Reserve and other central banks is, is kind of a, a constant reason to want to look to, to buy the dips. And so when you think about the election, it's 43 days away, uh, as we keep reminding people today, and we'll probably remind people as it gets to 42 and all the way down, how much does that figure into your calculus here and how much pause does it give you in terms of making any big moves, Dave? Yeah, I I think that, um, you know, maybe the most important investor trait when you're considering marrying election implications to the market may be humility, uh, simply because it is so difficult to forecast all the variables correctly. You know, who's going to win the White House? Who's going to control the Senate? What will the immediate market reaction be? Which sectors will will, will be, you know, kind of winners and losers? Threading that needle is extremely difficult. So uh, we tend not to do a lot of positioning uh, around election results. I will say, though, that the interplay between this Supreme Court battle and the election, I think, does uh, ramp up the potential volatility here. And, and that's because I think that the the fight over this Supreme Court seat is going to suck all the air out of Washington for the rest of the year. And I think it's now very unlikely that we see a significant fiscal support package. Yeah. Uh, it's just been pushed to the side. And, and that, that is, in the short term anyway, somewhat troubling to me because I think the economy needs some of that to sustain its momentum through the fourth quarter. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Every economist we talk to, it's not a matter of like, well, maybe you can make an argument against it. Just about every economist will tell you something more needs to happen. And I think we also worry, as you said at the top of the conversation, about a second wave. And if we see, you know, furloughs or layoffs or a slowdown in spending, you know, that's only going to become more pressing. Yeah, I think that's right. There's still an incredible amount of impairment in the economy. You just look at the number of of unemployed and a trend toward, you know, the percentage of unemployed essentially being long-term unemployed instead of just uh, furloughed. And, uh, you know, we have this remarkable situation now where, you know, GDP has been clobbered, but disposable income is still up. That's all because of government support. Without that, um, you know, we would we would still be in a, in a recession that was uh, – was getting worse as opposed to the beginning of a recovery. So this is a bit of a, I think going to be a bit of a high wire act for the fourth quarter. Okay, yikes. So the potential to stay in recession, go back into recession, I don't know. What's the scenario? What are, you, what are the scenarios that you guys are playing out at your office? Well, the way I view it is we, uh, we're not in recession anymore. We're, we're in recovery, and we'll see that, you know, kind of verified mm-hmm. with um, – third quarter, G, you know, big jump in third quarter GDP. Right. Um, the question is, when can we get to expansion? You know, when, when how right. long do we have to go before we just recover what was lost from COVID-19? I think that is probably, you know, sometime late into 2021. And, and if things don't go well, you know, in, in the fourth quarter, 
you know, we're probably looking at 2022 before we can even think about um, an economic expansion. And that leads me to think that some of the quick upward revisions that have been having to corporate earnings may be, may be ahead of themselves. Well, the Fed's already told us, right, that they're going to keep rates low. And of course, that can change, but they've said low for a long time. I mean, it's just kind of more of what we've had, you know, post-financial crisis, but it just potentially continues for even longer. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you, you can't ask too much more of the Fed in terms no. of, of clarity over not just the, the months, but the years. Uh, but I think there was the assumption that there would be some, some fiscal support yes. along the way here. And that's what's really come into question now. Well, it seems like there was that assumption from Jay Powell and his pals. So, you know, they, they've been sort of saying it, whether it's in his testimony or whether it's in his statements or his uh, statements to the press and his colleagues as they've talked to uh, reporters and, and given speeches, et cetera. All right, Dave Donavidian, thank you so much. Chief Investment Officer for CIBC Private Wealth Management, joining us on the phone from Baltimore. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.